The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald and you're listening to Blethered on the Big Light Network. My guest is former MI6 spy, Eamon Dean. Returning listeners will be well aware of Eamon from my previous two chats with him on the subject of his life and career. For those who aren't, here's a wee bit of background. Often described as the West's most significant and valued spy of the 21st century, Eamon worked undercover with MI6 deep within Al-Qaeda, providing a constant stream of invaluable information to the British security services, something that has irrefutably saved thousands of lives. On joining MI6, Eamon's initial debriefs took place in safe houses all over Scotland, sparking an intense love affair with the country, a nation he calls his spiritual home. After moving to Scotland in 2019, Eamon enrolled his young daughter with one of the country's top private girls' schools in Edinburgh. He thought his family were set for life in the land that he chose to call home. But now, just two and a half years later, the family is set to leave Scotland completely as things have gone drastically wrong. In this conversation, Eamon explains a series of events that have led to this decision to leave the country for good, and he gives his reasons for speaking out, particularly for the protection of those who may be in a similar situation in future. This episode is brought to you by debt experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash blethered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt Senior Debt Advisor Tommy Gallagher, where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't Fret About Debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland, helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. Eamon, great to have you back in the studio. Oh, great to see you again, Sean. How are you? How's things? Uh, still alive. <laughs> <laughs> I love that little catchphrase. Um, you and I, have we've recorded two podcasts. Um, the first one back in June 2020, just as the uh, COVID chaos was kind of slowing down a wee bit, and then, it, and then it shot off again. If anybody would like to hear that, that interview in which we discussed in detail, you know, your life story, childhood and that, very very interesting pathway you've been down people can go and find that there's a lot more detail but we will have a a bit of a refresh Um, and let's start with the point of you going to Qatar uh, and going to Doha give us a little refresh of between between that point and where we're at now and and what's happened in your life well um, I remember it was December of 1998 I was uh, leaving Afghanistan and I was going to um uh, to Doha because I wanted to go back uh, home to Saudi Arabia or to Bahrain, you know, to my family. Um, however, uh, there in Doha, you know, through many twists and turns, I ended up being recruited uh, by none other than MI6, um, the UK uh, Secret Intelligence Service. And, you know, I was brought back to the UK not only for debriefing, uh, because of the extensive knowledge I had uh, on Afghanistan, on uh, the groups that are operating there, including Al-Qaeda, um, but also to be trained um, and then to be sent back to Afghanistan, not 
as just on the you know on 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 the, on the from the from, from the outset I look like a jihadist, but also to be a spy inside you know the jihadist groups there, including Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. I suppose a part of that would have been playing a penance, like paying your sort of paying your dues um, and kind of evening up the score of which you you have done extensively and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of talk about that but was there never a point of a part of you that wanted to say no do you know what I'd like to just go and live a peaceful life because the, the amount of danger you would put yourself in the amount of stress um, and everything that comes attached with it what was it made you want to, to go and do that and play such a, a fundamental part in, in helping the West in their fight against terrorism I remember when I was asked to go back to Afghanistan I remember that was around April of uh, 1999 When I was asked to do that, um, my MI5 and MI6 handlers were expecting me to say, "Okay, give me a week or two to think about it. However, they were absolutely surprised when I said, oh, yeah, I will do it. I didn't even think about it. I said, yes, Mm. I will do it. Because for me, always, always my sense of duty override my sense of fear. Mm. That was always the case with me. And... I felt that I had a duty because if I was brave enough to be in the battlefields of Bosnia and Afghanistan and other places and be on that side, brave enough to be with them, it would be extremely hypocritical of me not to be brave enough to do what is right and to be on the right side. I mean, we'll, ju- we'll cut straight to the chase. Um, the, the You've been described as the most important spy for the West in the 21st century. Um, you have contributed to the... the, the well, how, how would I even describe that? The blocking or the prevention of, of multiple attacks. I mean, is there anything that you, that you can share just to give people an idea of the magnitude of the, the contribution that you've made? I was able to inform... In, on a plot that was taking place in order to uh, attack the New York subway uh, in 2003 with using chemical devices. I was uh, informing on that plot in a, from inception until it was cancelled. Um, I was also um, part of a cell. I was undercover within a cell that was planning to attack the uh, U.S. Marines who were stationed in Bahrain as part of the U.S. Navy's 5th Fleet. Um, so that was supposed to be an attack on them while they were celebrating the new year. Um, And that was foiled too. Um, Throughout my career, I was able to inform and update the knowledge of the intelligence services on the explosives, poisons, chemical and biological program of Al-Qaeda on its entirety. You know, we're talking about 800 pages of materials, you know, that were smuggled out of Afghanistan and into the hands of uh, MI6. Uh, at the same time, I was able to pinpoint the location of no less than 80% of the camps, uh, their locations, the routes, uh, not to mention the safe houses scattered all over Afghanistan, multiple cells across Europe, multiple cells across the Middle East were uncovered, you know, more or less due to the fact that I did my best to insert myself um, into uh, these cells without, uh, you know, raising my risk profile. Mm -hmm. So it was really seven and a half years, you know, to be precise, from the moment I started working for the intelligence services all the way until, unfortunately, um, (laughs) a U.S. uh, reporter, you know, got hold of U.S. intelligence papers, which unfortunately identified me as a spy within Al-Qaeda. 
I can't believe they would <laughs> they, they would um, jeopardise or, or compromise the uh, the integrity of, of an asset like that. But that's, that's a question for or a conversation for another day. Um, it's it's quite terrifying, you know. One terrorist attack is is one far too many. But to think that, that there could have been so 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 many more and they were prevented. What would have happened to you, you know, if they'd have caught you? I, I don't mean to ask quite an insensitive question because I imagine the the consequences would have been severe. But you know, what what risk were you realistically putting yourself and your loved ones in? Well, at that moment, you know, I was alone, so I wasn't married or anything like mm-hmm. that. And you know, uh, from the age of twenty until the age of twenty eight, I was part of uh, that network as a spy within them. Um, if I was to be caught at that time and I was in one of their camps or in, in Afghanistan or in Saudi Arabia or in Lebanon, I would have been, you know, uh, put on trial and then beheaded. You know, there was no question about it. I mean, that that was uh, the fate that awaits any spy who would be, have been caught within the organization spying on them. Uh, and there were actually five at least during my time in Afghanistan from uh, 1999 all the way until 2001. 33 months where I've seen five spies who were spying for the Egyptians and the Jordanian intelligence services, they were caught and they were beheaded. Um, But this shows you the superiority of the British intelligence training and also their management. Because these people, even though they were older than me, they were more experienced than me, but yet they were under severe pressure by their handlers, by their intelligence agencies to perform and to uh, get results. However, I was always told by my handlers at the time, as long as you come, as long as you go into Afghanistan and come back alive, this in itself is an achievement. Mm-hmm. Do not ask questions. Do not try to um, find information in a way that will raise your uh, profile in an unfavorable way. As long as you come back alive, for us, this is a bonus. We are you know, playing the long game here. Yeah. And so that was a good thing from their point of view. And, you know, so unfortunately, in the end, they did find out. Uh, and in 2008, they did actually um, you know, pass a sentence of death on me. Um, however, that sentence of death was what we call, uh, it classified me as a target of opportunity, not a target of pursuit. Um, you know, to be more precise, it means that if you encounter him, then yes, yeah. you may take uh, you know a shot at him, but do not pursue him. That that happened, didn't it? And that was at the London Underground. Someone just by pure chance happened to to see you. Indeed, and he did chase me, and thank God, like, and I was able to you know outrun him and yeah. uh, you know uh, get into safety. And also in 2016, you know, I was supposed to attend a wedding. Um, and they knew exactly where I'm coming from, you know, which route I'm taking from the airport to the wedding of my relative, and then uh, what route I will take outside after that, and you know, going back to the airport. So there was a plan to do that, but of course, the security services in that country were able to, um, you know, uh, get hold of that uh, plot before it happened, and so they uh, informed me 48 hours before I was supposed to land, and so I never landed after that. Mm. It became clear to me that. Uh, something need to be done because when that happened, that I, you know, my wife was pregnant with uh, our child. So something needed to happen. And so by 2018, uh, at the very beginning, 
certain measures were put in place in order to safeguard myself, my family, uh, and to make sure that, you know, we do not have to live in hiding mm-hmm. for the rest of our lives. Um, you know, Sean, I briefed you about these measures <laughs> yes. in private and person. I will leave it up to you like, to describe how effective they are. Yeah, I mean, I can give the description, you know, speaking, as, as I said to you earlier, from one um, undercover, very important spy to another. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm hugely aware of, of the, the sensitivity of this information. But yeah, I, I can confirm that upon being given the briefing once, um, you know, my jaw came back off the floor when you kind of described it. I thought, OK, that is, that is an incredibly effective measure and one that... It suits both parties. Um, Indeed. It's, it's kind of all we can say. Um, I don't want my bosses at MI6 to get annoyed at me either. Actually, I wasn't <laughs> supposed to tell anyone that I'm also a spy, even though I just did. Um, the, the You know, I don't mean to be... I'm not being facetious or flippant when I make this comparison, yeah. right? But the, the people who, who would have had this grudge or this gripe, um, to put it very lightly... They're not just a guy that you might encounter in a pub um, who maybe has got a, a good punch on him. This is a, a well-funded, well-organised, hugely extensive network uh, and the, the consequences would have been drastic even uh, in the way that they would try to catch you. So I think I remember reading in your book you were saying the story when someone pointed the gun at you in Afghanistan and said, we know you're the spy and your training then had to kick in. And I felt... The blood run from my face. What happened? I mean, what what was that that incident? Well, it was in Afghanistan, and it was in late 1999. I mean, because I was traveling, you know, all the time in and out, and so I was one of those people who should be checked randomly. Mm. You know, they call it random check. You know, so this guy he came. And uh, I was in the kitchen, and they chose the kitchen in particular because this is when you're, you know, you, you know, you are let your guard down. You are yeah. at ease, cooking something, preparing some food for yourself and for your fellow jihadists there. And I saw that other people in the kitchen were leaving. And I didn't know why and they were leaving, as if someone gave them a cue, you know, leave. Yeah. And then I felt, you know, the end of a pistol, you know, pointing at my spine and, you know, and, and someone's voice telling me, game over. We know who you are. We know who you work for. And I was thinking, okay, thank God for the training I had. Because I was told... You know, by the British, that if someone comes to you in this manner and tells you game over, we know who you are. That's it. Just come quietly with us. We know, like, and I mean, you know, that you are a spy. If they don't say exactly which intelligence agency that you work for, then they're bluffing. Mm. They have no exact circumstances. They need to mention to you something that only you know about. And if they just mention generic, you know, uh, information like this, oh, we know who you work for. Then they're bluffing. So please just go with the bluff. You mm. know? So I turned around and I was looking at him and I was saying, you know, this is a sick joke. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to point a gun at a fellow jihadist. Lower your gun now. And he was like taken aback and he was saying, no, no, no I know who you are. I said, I don't care if you know. Who I, of course, I, I, you know, I am your fellow jihadist here. Put down your weapon. So you're not a spy. I'm not a spy, you idiot. Put down your weapon now. So... Of course, he put it down and he said, I'm sorry, I was just told to do it. You know, your name was on the list. It's just a random check. You know, nothing personal. I'm sorry. Mm. Like, I mean, and so it became clear that they had nothing on me. Yeah. But it was just a random check. It's called a shakedown, a random shakedown. Yeah. And, you know, 
this is my training. Like, I mean, my training kicked in and I was able to, you know, withstand this particular, you know, random shakedown. Um, but that was where in Afghanistan, within the camps, you know, it's not like, you know, in a civilian society, just like where we are living right now. That takes the concept of deny till you die to a whole new level. <laughs> if there's any students listening to this and you get accused of like drinking your flatmate's milk, don't buy into it. He's bluffing you. He, does, he doesn't know it was you. He's just trying to catch you out. But that had some serious implications for your physical health, didn't it? Because you're having to internalise that absolute horrendously overwhelming anxiety and stress that what what impact did that have on on your physical health you know going forward that you had to keep that all in well i remember goodness like and i mean you know there were a long period of time between um 2003 and 2004 13 months continuous undercover 13 months deep undercover within two cells uh, in arabia and you know by the end of it I was diagnosed with diabetes mm. because I, you know, I was 26 at that time and I couldn't internalize it anymore. Like, I mean, I was internalizing, internalizing, and I was, you know, keeping those, you know, feelings locked inside. You remember, like, you know, you are, you know, staying in the safe houses with them. You are preparing, you know, for future attacks with them. You are doing reconnaissance. You are also passing intelligence on everyone who's involved. Um, and the pressure... Uh, the mental pressure that you are under is severe, to say the least. And so you don't want to show it. You don't want to show your fellow um, cell members that you are afraid or you are nervous. No, you know, you have to show cool, calm demeanor. Um, and that is why I think in the end I ended up with, you know, uh, myself becoming diabetic um, because something inside just broke down. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, the the internal chemical balance just went completely haywire. Mm. That, I mean, that you're lucky it didn't kill you. I'm glad it didn't kill you. I can make this assertion without even having to ask that throughout all that stress, you're seeing it, it is the greater good and it is your sense of duty. And I suppose you're seeing the what you were managing to prevent and the information to, to pass on. So your your contribution cannot be understated. Um I honestly, I can't, I really can't imagine the fact that I feel sick, kind of imagining myself in that situation, it kind of explains what you must have felt. Um, when your cover was eventually blown, you, you then went to work in, in the finance industry. Was that like prevention of, of terrorist funding or basically helping to, to spot patterns? Like what, what would that entail? Well, after my cover was uh, undermined, um there was a question of what to do. And of course, like, you know, there was, a, you know, uh, you know the, the, I always have this joke where I say, yes, I ended up exchanging one form of terrorism to another. I went into <laughs> banking. <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> yeah. So weapons of math destruction. <laughs> so I, I went into banking because, you know, during my time as a, an undercover spy inside Al-Qaeda, um, I was one of those people responsible for some of the business dealings of Al-Qaeda. So the export and import business that they had, mm. um, exporting many uh, high value items out of Afghanistan and northern Pakistan uh, into uh, Arabia. So my role within that uh, business network enabled me to understand the flow of money in and out of these organizations. You know, the banks they use, the charities they use, the businesses they use as a front. And so... That was valuable to 
I remember a senior official from MI6 who was moving on to a global bank to go and work with them. He said, you'll be coming with me to work you know, in that global bank because you'll be good at first identifying, tracking, and then disruption of terrorism finance. We mm-hmm. need to understand how they do it. We need to know where they do it, geographically speaking, and with the methodology they use. And, um, you know, it's not just only about the terrorism finance, but also sometimes you can employ using AI, using artificial intelligence even, to uh, detect terrorism intention before even it happened. And I don't want to go into too much details because it could give the game away, but there are, you know, I worked or really like you know on ingenious solutions and people who know me from different think tanks and you know, different um, organizations around the world they know my contribution uh, in this part I don't want to go into details about what I did but there were some of them were really ingenious solutions of detecting the movement of funds and also terrorism intention before it happens. Mm. The, you mentioned there about work at different think tanks and working with different um, bodies or, or organisations globally. How much can you tell me in terms of examples? Because I would just think it, it is very relevant to paint the picture of the esteem in which you're held uh, and the contribution which you have globally. Um, I don't want to say any, just in case I'm not allowed, <laughs> but you can. Well, there, there are. I, I still consult, you know, for certain governments. Some of them I worked with them for almost nine years now, and still doing so. Um, whether they are in the EU, whether they are, um, you know, in the Middle East, whether they are in the Far East, uh, I've been doing so for about five governments now. Um, as well, in terms of like, you know, not only terrorism finance, but also in terms of, you know, counterterrorism proper. Um, f- several law enforcements around the world where I do provide training on counterterrorism finance. Um, certain um, bodies, you know, that deal with prisoners and prisons uh, in terms of de-radicalization in prisons and reforms to the prison system, not only, you know, you know, uh, in the UK, but also abroad. So I've been doing a lot of work um, in that regard, goodness, like in, all the way until now. Mm. An immense contribution when it spans um, many, many years. Oh, you don't look old enough to have to have been working for that long. Um, <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind yeah. of you. <laughs> but um, that, so I, I was on a flight recently, and then someone came up and tapped me, and he said, "Hi, I just wanted to chat to you about the the interview with him and Dean. I listened to it recently, and the point that he made immediately, and that everyone always makes, is like, how come he lives in Scotland? Like, what? Like, that's <laughs> why would he be here? Like, they would think you would be in some far flung exotic location, but instead you're." just kind of near um i won't say where um how, how did that come about how did you end up living in scotland and and what is your connection to the country because it's a very intense <laughs> sort of spiritual one isn't it indeed i mean first of all you know you know how could you say that you know scotland is not exotic it is for <laughs> me it is yeah yeah I, I mean for us it's just raining all the time but, I mean. <laughs> well uh, one of the things that happened with me is that from the beginning um, you know, my bonding, you know, experiences with my MI5 and MI6 handlers were always happening in Scotland. So from from day one, like, yeah. I mean, really, Scotland is where we always travel to in order to spend time together, to get to know each other. And then for me to have a good time, because for me, mountains, lakes, rivers, this greenery, this wonderful sky. And I don't care about the rain. I love it. I mean, so, <laughs> you know, I, I, I just fell in love with it. And there, were, you know, there was this deep spiritual connection that I felt with the land. And so, therefore, 
you know, I've been here at least six times on bonding, you know, sessions with my uh, MI5 and MI6 handlers, um, especially in the Highlands. And I fell in love with the Highlands. And I remember that in later years when I got married, the first thing I said to my wife, I want to take you to my favorite part of the world, where? Scotland. And... As I expected, just like me, she fell in love with it. Yeah. And I remember that in September of 2015, um, I think it was just, you know, just before our uh, first anniversary, uh, we were standing next to the cannons in Edinburgh Castle, looking over the uh, city skyline. And she was telling me, because we were living abroad at that time, and she was telling me, if we ever move back to the UK, this is the city I want to go to. Mm. So... And I said, yes, and we put that in our mind. So, you know, and we came to Scotland, you know, two or three times at least. We've been all over the place, like, you know, from the Isle of Marlon, Iona, the Isle of Skye, you know, all over the highlands, you know, uh, the A82, the A95, the A85, you know, the, you know, I, we went to Alapool, we went to Lyre, I mean, we, I, I, you know, Inverness, of course. I mean, we've done a lot. You've, you've seen 90%, 95% more of Scotland than I have. And I, <laughs> I don't know if it's like a Scottish thing where, you know, I take, you take your country for granted a wee bit. Um, so, yeah, you've, you decided to move there. Um, at, at which point would that have been then? That you, which year would that have been? Well, we decided to do it in 2019. Mm. Um, so by the end of 2019, uh, you know, my wife and I, we were discussing, um, okay, we just had a new kid recently, uh, my son. Um, and by that time, our daughter was about three. Mm-hmm. And so we were now thinking seriously about the school for her. Yeah. And where do we live? And so we decided that London is not exactly the best place to raise kids. Um, I'm sure many Londoners will agree with me. <laughs> um, and so we were looking at the map and my wife, remembering those wonderful memories that we had in Scotland, mm-hmm. she said, what about Scotland? What about Edinburgh? They must have really good schools there. Um, and so we started doing you know, some of our research and then we pinpointed one school and we said, that's it. This school, let's get in touch with them. Let's start you know, the process and let's go for a... A Christmas break there in 2019 to have mm. a look. And this is how it all happened. Good timing. You know, what could possibly go wrong at the start of 2020? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody could have foreseen that. Your daughter was enrolled. Was, this was in the nursery school. Was this December 2019? Yes. I mean, we made the application December 2019 and that she was joining in March of 2020. Mm. Now, obviously, knowing the profile that you have and... Uh, and the experiences and you'd moved into sort of media work at that point so your profile would have been even more public did did you have the the obligation to to let the school know or you know what are the what are the dynamics of that well there are certain dynamics where you know for example i would you know go to the school and i would you know, during the the meeting, the physical meeting that I had with them um, and with the head of the nursery at that time, is to inform her. My duty is to inform her that as part of the school, and, you know, I will say which school it is, it is St. George's School uh, for Girls in Edinburgh. Uh, So I informed, uh, you know, the concerned person there that just to let you know, that while I would love my, you know, for my daughter to join your school in a first nursery and then after that to continue throughout the years with your school, just to let you know that I do have a certain public profile and that you need to be fully aware of it 
Um, so you don't feel later that yeah. there was any um, deception in, from my part. This is my public profile. I am the author of this book. It's an autobiography. I, it's a good read, by the way, if anybody oh. wants to get it. <laughs> Thank you. And I um, have a podcast, um, you know, where I discuss, you know, uh, geopolitical affairs. Um, you know, it's called Conflicted. So, you know, so I was forthcoming about it, um, and then. You know, two months later, they came back with a letter saying, yeah, you are accepted. You know, your daughter is accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking, hey, hooray, thank you so much. Um, and then, you know, without going into details, how did I know this? I n- kind of knew that the school sought some form of reassurance from my previous employers. I mean, mm-hmm. they got in touch with the security services in my five and yeah. they were asking them, is it safe? And, you know, uh, knowing what measures they took to keep us safe, you know, the uh, security services came back to the school, to St. George's uh, uh, teacher, and informed her that all is fine, all is safe. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go ahead with this admission. You would think, well, I would assume that that would hold a lot of weight and a lot of credibility. If you you go direct to the security services and they, they say, yeah, no, no problem. I would guess, would I be right in saying that in actual fact, the school would, would it probably never be safer? You know, if if, if there was your connection to it, is there going to be maybe a, 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 an eye kept on it? You know, what's what's the deal there? Well, I mean, judging by the fact that I told you that I work with not only one, but several governments, like in around the world in the consultancy yeah. in capacity, you know, in counterterrorism and other uh, uh, capacities, I mean... They will be keeping an eye on us and an eye on our daughter, Mm -hmm. I mean, for sure. And, uh, you know, the school couldn't have been more safer, let's put it this way, (laughs) uh, because there would be several, um, you know, interested bodies, you know, keeping an eye on us um, and trying to keep us safe. Not to mention the measures that were taken already, which I briefed you on, which Mm -hmm. designed not only to keep us safe, but to make sure that we can live a normal life, you know, semi-open normal life, mm-hmm. um, which we're working fine all the way until now. And, it, you know, let's hope, you know, touch wood, like and it will continue to work, you yeah. know, uh, all time. Um, n- however, um, you know, we, we, with the start of the nursery and, you know, with my daughter, like, you know, going to nursery, it was a blessing that the uh, because of COVID, the drop times were always scattered, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, I would be coming around nine, around 8.50, around 9.10, you know, dropping my daughter. I would not necessarily encounter any other parents. Perfect. And at the same time, um, you know, at the pickup, you know, you will be encountering them, but in a limited you know, number. And so because of the COVID, we have to stand, you know, the, 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 the safe distance in you know, the social distancing, as they used to call it. Um, so that was a blessing in a sense. Um, so I don't have to interact with anyone. I don't have to yeah. introduce myself to anyone. Perfect. It worked. You know, with the exception, unfortunately, like you know, of uh, one particular parent who was extremely nosy, you know, no, but that's another story altogether. Um, because of the WhatsApp group that all the parents must register yeah, to a WhatsApp yeah. group just in case there is an emergency and I'm the only driver in the family. While my wife is an excellent driver, it's just because of COVID, she didn't have enough time yeah. <laughs> to get her license done. So I uh, you know, was happy with all that arrangement. However, as we moved into uh, August of 2021, Things started to change a little bit because now it is, oh my God, my favorite moment ever when I saw 
my daughter uh, in her school uniform, proper school uniform, yeah. going into uh, her first year in school, primary one. And I was so proud, you know, like and when you see them in their full uniforms going into their classroom. Oh, my God, that was an amazing moment. And so it was late August of uh, 2021. This time, however, you know, the drop and pickup times are strict, you mm-hmm. know. We all have to come. We all have to see them, you know, line up, going into their assembly inside and, you know, then going into their classrooms. So we have to really wait around for about 10, 15 minutes until they're all inside. They're all lined up and they're all gone. And then we go. So we come as a group. We leave as a group. And then for the pickup, it's the same thing. You go. They all come as one line, and mm-hmm. then the teacher will identify, you know, parents in order to send their kids to them. And so, uh, which was in a beautiful moment, like, you know, you go and you pick up your daughter and, yeah. you know, she's absolutely wonderful and smiling and coming and hugging you. So, you know, that was also normal. But the problem is now is that in that classroom, there were 16, 17 kids, uh, including ours, which means there will be 16 sets of other parents. Um, and th- this is basically where people will get to know you. People, you, know, you have to introduce yourself to others. And of course, you are part, because of the fact I'm the only driver, you are part of the WhatsApp group. Mm-hmm. Being part of the WhatsApp group is that in this day and age, in the age of technology and all of that, it means what? It means that at some point people will Google you. People will know who you are eventually. Um, and uh, that didn't take that long. I mean, by the end of September... You know, I was identified at least like, you know, by two or three parents. Mm. And that, you know, is the start of rather an unfortunate chain of events. Uh, Unfortunate is an understatement. I would say disgraceful chain of events. Yeah. You know, that led, unfortunately, to a undesirable outcome. Mm That it was a a very specific timing, you're saying, in sort of end of September, start of October. So in September of that year, 2021, you gave a number of television interviews marking the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, you know, discussing Al-Qaeda and your work as an undercover agent for the UK, which I do think it is pertinent and relevant to point out that the time within Al-Qaeda is far, far, far outweighed by the the amount of time spent um, as an undercover agent working against them. What what changed then? You know, perhaps people are getting to kind of know you, they're getting a wee idea of you. Did you notice then just this immediate, you know, 180 in terms of how people were responding to you or, or interacting with you? Well, generally, I was always coming, bringing my daughter, dropping her there, and I was always trying just to be cordial and friendly with everyone. But then it is very clear at that moment that there were five parents who started to stay as far away from me on the ground as possible. Mm. Um, I've, you know, it's not, you know, I'm a perceptive person. I'm a spy, after all. I I am trained to read facial expressions and body language, um, and so I realized that, and I was thinking, okay, you know, that that, that shouldn't phase me at all. Like, and I mean, whatever they want to do, they can do. Like, you know, it's you know, free country after all. You can stand wherever you want. Um, it doesn't bother me. I'm just here to drop my daughter and to pick her up. That's it. Nothing else. Um, and so that should have been the case because for me. It wasn't about other parents. It was about my daughter, and that's it. However, all of this changed uh, when on the 8th of October, uh, 2021, I've received uh, an urgent communication from the school, from the secretary of the uh, head teacher, uh, you know, where she is 
asking that the head teacher and another senior uh, member of staff want to have a word with me um, about, you know, and this is in the email, about my public profile and the security of my daughter at school. Um, I was thinking, um, well, my public profile is no one's business, mm. um, to be honest. Like, I mean, and uh, you already received a assurance, you know, from the security services. They know what they're doing, um, and I know what I'm doing, and therefore it's you know redundant. But nonetheless, you know, we will have this uh, meeting. Uh, this meeting was scheduled then on the 14th of October, and it's supposed to be a Microsoft Teams meeting where a video call. Mm-hmm. Uh, so me and my wife, we were there. And this is when, uh, you know, one of the most bizarre encounters of my life took place. <laughs> Let's put it this way. It's a You've had some pretty bizarre encounters, I would imagine. <laughs> You know, for someone like me who encountered, you know, Bin Laden and Zawahri and Zarqawi and, you know, I don't know, many other mass murderers and, <laughs> you know, and terrorists. Like, I mean, I didn't, you know, because, you know, like, and I was thinking, hey, I'm just meeting, you know, I, you know, a head teacher of my daughter's school and one of her senior staff. Like, you know, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> um so uh, the meeting started and the head teacher, uh, Alex Hems, and by the way, Alex is not a man, like, I mean, it's Alexandra Hems, okay. uh, so uh, for the benefit of the listener. So um, Mrs. Alex Hems, uh, you know, started the meeting really aggressively. I mean, you know, right from the start, you know, talking about how my public profile is rather like an annoyance for the school. And I was thinking, yeah, but it's none of anyone's business. And I already briefed you about it. Like, mm. I mean, so, but nonetheless, I let her talk about it. She said that, you know, you have, um, you know, uh, you know, recently came to the attention of, um, you know, several of our, you know, school community. I said parents, you mean? Yeah, yeah, parents. So how many of them? Well, you know, two or three. Okay. Um, so what is the problem here? They are expressing, you know, grave concerns. Yeah. And um, because, you know, that's not my responsibility. That is the school responsibility to address uh, other parents' fears. Um, So she said, yes, but there are, you know, fears and concerns must be addressed. Um, I said, yeah, but my understanding is that you already sought, um, you know, some reassurance from the security services um, and that they came back to you uh, saying that, you know, everything is fine and you should go ahead, you know, uh, you know, there should be no problem. And she said, oh, yes. And actually, you know, recently also we revisited the, um, you know, this channel and we asked the security services for an update, you know, if there is any change. And they came back to us and they said everything is fine. But nonetheless, the, the, the fears of the parents must be addressed. OK. Um, so in, in what sense, uh, you know, that need to be addressed? Um, so she went on and she says, well, we need to have you know, some sort of security measures uh, in order to, um, you know, mitigate any uh, risk. You must be feeling vulnerable. You must be feeling exposed every time you park and, you know, you come and bring your daughter to the school. You know, what we have in mind is that we want to vary your times. You know, we want you to come at different times, you know, for the drop and different times at pickup. So I said, well, there is no need for a drastic measure like this. Um, you know, and uh, for a good reason. I mean, because first of all, there is no risk, and the uh, and I don't feel exposed or you know uh, f- f- feeling vulnerable. Um, however, 
you know, uh, wh- why would you think that? And they said, oh, yeah, it's just like, you know, to make sure that you are safe, your daughter is safe, everything is fine. So what we suggest is that you come and you drop your daughter around 20, 25 minutes, you know, after the usual time for the drop. And you come and pick her up, you know, about 30 minutes after the usual time for the pickup. Hmm. Um, I'm not stupid. You know, I'm... Many things, but stupid is not one of them. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree with that. <laughs> yeah, and I don't like it when people insult my intelligence. And I, and I felt my intelligence insulted there because this isn't about security. In fact, I was opening my phone and I was writing on the notes you know, for my wife without you know, uh, mm-hmm. Mrs. Hems and her colleague seeing. I will be planting a question to them to see if this is about security or not. So I asked, I said... Um, Mrs. Hems, would it be possible then if we can keep the times normal, but, you know, the school gates open with a fob, you know, so anyone, any member of staff mm-hmm. will have a fob to go in to park inside the school grounds and also delivery, you know, vans or whatever. So how about you give me a fob? I go inside, drop my daughter as normal and then come back and pick my daughter up as normal without her having to miss line up and assembly and playing, you know, with her uh, friends uh, Mm -hmm. the very early morning and then to settle into class normally. No need, you know, for such drastic measure. Her response to me confirmed immediately that it was not about security at all. Mm. She snapped at me. She said, no, this will be seen as an unnecessary privilege by other parents. I would have imagined that, that having to drop your, your child for, for both you and your child would be uh, an unnecessary disadvantage because um, I'm not a parent. Um, but if I was, and I imagine a lot of people who are parents would be thinking immediately that, you know, your child is put at a serious disadvantage. And that is the most important thing, isn't it? The, the well-being of, of your daughter. You know, those times are very important. Line up, you know, being part of everything and just being part of the, the group. Indeed. Um, so when we started, my wife and I showing resistance to this, you know, idea. This is when, you know, the tone of the meeting went even more sour, you know, than, you know, what, than what it was already. She started saying, you know what, I accepted this admission against my better judgment. I know when she said that, I was yeah. thinking, oh my God, like, I mean, am I like, like really listening to a reasonable person here? Mm. Um, and I don't want to, you know, regret this admission. This, you know, I can read between the lines. This is a threat. Mm. You know, this is a threat that, you know, if you don't, you know, agree with what we are asking you to do, you know, you might as well take your daughter and go. So this is when I said, okay, we are considering it. No worry about it. You know, I'm happy to you know, um, you know, take it into consideration for sure. You know, and then she said, you know, as if like, you know, as if the tone of the meeting couldn't even more be more unfriendly. She said to me, what were you thinking? Don't expect a welcome in Scotland. People of Edinburgh are conservative with a small C. They can't grasp complex issues. This is not London. Is she speaking about the people of Edinburgh, or the parents of the school that are unable to understand complex issues? Do you have a, Do you have an opinion? I mean, I don't know. All I know basically is that you know I've been told, you know, in front of my own wife, mm. and in front of you know that uh, senior colleague of her, that don't expect a welcome in Scotland. 
while I'm listening to your your account, um, I would have to say I, you know, I strongly disagree. I think the 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 first interview that you and I had um, strongly demonstrates that in fact the people of Scotland can understand complex issues. Not everything is completely binary. There's things are multifaceted. There's a yin and yang and everything. So you did agree to the the, the different drop off times. What did that entail? Was it was it coming? five minutes after or was there a huge level of disruption to, to your daughter's school experience? Well, I mean, we were told to come, for example, the drop would be about uh, 8.30, 8.35, 8.40. We will be coming at 9.05. So, you know, there is a 20 to 25 minutes difference uh, in the drop. And it wasn't only that, Sean. We will be coming, myself and my daughter, you know, to the school door. And of course, no one is there. And so we have to ring the bell. Mm. and ring the bell and ring the bell and wait sometime between three minutes, four minutes, five minutes and sometimes even ten minutes and sometimes those ten minutes under the rain. And for seven months, Sean, seven Mm. months we complied with this without any complaint from our side. We just complied silently with this regulation, with this, um, you know, measure that was put on us without any complaint whatsoever. But nonetheless, you know, in two dozen occasions, and this is proven by emails between us and the school, Mm -hmm. that we come, we ring the bells and we tell them. We started complaining in November. You know, they did this on us in October. And in November, we started complaining about no one is there to, you know, pick our daughter up, you know, at reception. You know, we come and it's empty. Nothing was done. Exactly. And then... Instead of losing 20 and 25 minutes, she's losing 30 and 35 and sometimes 40 minutes. Uh, Why? Uh, Because of this measure that was unnecessary that was put on her. No problem. You know, we understood, my wife and I, when Mrs. Hems told us in that, you know, strange and bizarre video meeting that we had with her that we are supposed to do that, that it wasn't about security, that it is to make us invisible. They wanted us to come after other parents left, so they don't have to see us, mm-hmm. and that we come and pick up 30 minutes after they have left. Why 30 minutes? We were wondering because parents after pickup, they like to linger around and talk for about 10, 15 minutes between them. Then they take their kids and go. Yeah. So they want us to even be more invisible you know, at the pickup. Mm-hmm. But there was a problem, Sean, here is that, OK, there were two, three frightened um, parents, you know, who might have felt that my presence is not conducive to public good and security, although I don't know how. I'm a gentle person, after all, and sweet-natured. Um, we started to see something very strange, you know. So I will come with my daughter, and it is already 25 minutes late. Mm-hmm. And I would see two or three of, you know, those parents who already were, you know, uh, uneasy with us and not very comfortable with us, I would see them waiting at the corner of the street, you know, leading into the gate, just before the gate of the school. And they would be giving us dirty looks and snigger and smirk and, you know, do their best, absolute best to make us uncomfortable to the point where even my own daughter, my five-year-old daughter, is noticing it to the point where she was asking me, why... So-and-so's mother looks angry. And I would look at her and I'd say, ah, she must have dropped her key somewhere and she can't find it. So, I mean, my own daughter is noticing it. And I remember, you know, discussing this with my wife and I was saying, okay, it's been happening for a week. Then uh, the week became two weeks and then three weeks and two months and three months. And it is constant to the point where at some point, 
you know, it's almost started to look like a stalking. I mean, I started to know which cars they drive and I would then go and park on a different street. So I remember I one of them saw me from the corner of the street going and parking in a different street. And I already saw her car in the other street parking. I was now parked. I was taking my daughter out of the car and then I saw her passing by us and give us a, give, giving us a dirty look. I mean, your car wasn't in that street even to begin with. I already saw where you parked. Hmm. And nonetheless, she went out of her way to make sure that we get that dirty, uncomfortable, unfriendly look. And for me, I remember I used to discuss with my wife and my wife used to tell me, Eamon, just remember, what they want to do is to provoke you into just looking at them and saying, what's your problem? Mm -hmm. And that's it. They will be running away to the school straight away and say, look, 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 he is a violent person. He is someone who's trying to, you know, to intimidate us and everything and all of that. He just shouted at me. He just, you know, uh, he, he did something, you know, uh, awful. So this is why, you know, I kept quiet, mm -hmm. you know, and we decided, you know what, like, you know, we'll keep quiet. It doesn't bother us. But what started to bother us more and more is the fact that our daughter now is asking us uncomfortable questions. Yeah. Why I'm not, li not, not lining up? I like lining up with my friends. I like the assembly. Why am I not there at the assembly? And then she started telling us something even more concerning. I come to the class always late and her teacher at that time, while we you know, liked her teacher and you know, we have nothing against her, but the problem is she had no idea about why is late. Can you believe it? The school was so dysfunctional. Her teacher for months didn't know why the delay, why she's coming late. She has no idea. Do you think that was an intentional breakdown of communication in order to not have it questioned or, or scrutinised why that decision was made? It's possible. It's absolutely possible. I don't put it past them at all. Mm. So she would already take the you know attendance register and then my daughter would show up you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes later you know, and, you know, the teacher is not happy, of course. And then she will snap at her like, and I mean, don't empty your pockets, just come and sit down, settle down. So she doesn't even have time to settle. And she started, you know, saying things like, my school hates me. I, you know, oh, I, I, sad. Yeah, I go there and no one is allowing me to settle. I, I, all the time, they are, the teachers are, you know, always looking at me. You know, funny. And we know why they look at her funny, mm -hmm. because they think, you know, her timings are a burden. And I remember the staff and the teacher used to look at me funny also because, you know, why do you have to bring your you know, uh, daughter late? And then in later time, we realized that they've been told that it was my request. So the school was, you know, the school and the head teacher, as well as the other senior uh, staff members, were briefing parents and teachers that it was our request, hmm. it was our request to come to the school late and to pick up our daughter late. I, I think that in itself would evoke a lot of suspicion. What is the, the legal sort of standpoint on that? Do you know? Well, legally speaking, and only we found out this later, but legally speaking, what they would supposed to have done is to ask us to put all of this in writing, you know, I, Ayman Dean, request St. George's School, you know, to vary the timings of yeah. my daughter's pick up and drop, uh, you know, you know, for security reasons. Now, this needed to be shared and liaised with with other authorities, including the police, special branch, you know, uh, you know, and the education authorities, because they needed to know if it is for security reasons. Of course, you and I, 
and many listeners will be suspecting that it wasn't about security reasons. Yeah. And that there were other things at play here. Um, you know, uh, I don't want to like, you know, basically go into theories of what they are, but I will leave it to the imagination of the listener to determine mm-hmm. like, you know, what you know, uh, motivated either the, you know, the three parents who were always like, you know, I mean, giving us these, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uncomfortable, dirty, you know, smacks and, you know, what motivated the school to get along with them, to go along with them, basically, and, you know, to validate their, um, you know, weird motives. We did contact St George's School in Edinburgh in the interest of balance and transparency and, and the opportunity to give them uh, a right to reply. Uh, their statement reads as follows. While this matter is being examined by the Registrar for Independent Schools, it would be inappropriate for us to comment in any detail other than to say the school very strongly disputes the version of events and interpretation placed on them by Mr Dean. We are cooperating with the inquiry which is being held in response to a complaint from Mr Dean and have every confidence that once the Registrar has considered the matter, St George's will be found to have acted fully in accordance with all relevant safeguarding and regulatory procedures. Um... And in, in, Eamon, in March 2022, you returned from a trip to the Middle East um, and you were asked, do you pose a question about later in life for your daughter? Can you give me a wee bit of insight onto that? Goodness. So we just returned, you know, from a uh, a lengthy break uh, in the Middle East and uh, in Pakistan because my mother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, terminal cancer so she wanted to see her uh, granddaughter and grandson Uh, it was very opportune uh, Mm. because they spent 14 days with her and then you know sadly she passed away Uh, so it was important for uh, my daughter and my son uh, to at least like I mean see their grandmother and for her to see them before you know the end so we returned from that lengthy break and um, and I remember that I was talking to a senior member of staff there, uh, teaching staff, and we were talking about enrolling our son, our three-year-old son, uh, in uh, their nursery. And during the discussion, she said, out of the blue, um, she said, I worry for your daughter. Um, one day she will grow up and she will read all of the things online about you, I wonder how she will take it. And, you know, my wife and I, we were looking at each other and thinking, well, how she will take it? Like, and I mean, hopefully she will be proud, you know, daddy, the spy. I mean, that's, yeah, I would say, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's how she will take it, most likely. Um, but nonetheless, her tone was, you know, your daughter should be ashamed of you. Um, we decided not to comment on this at all and to keep it to ourselves because we were more concerned about getting our son into the nursery. So mm-hmm. we thought, okay, you know, and especially the fact that we told the school that, look, we would like our son to join the nursery because, you know, first of all, it will be easier for us, you know, dropping the uh, same siblings, you know, to, um, you know, to the same building. Uh, but also at the same time, we gave them a report um, you know, diagnosis report for our son. Our son, and you've seen him, uh, Sean, like, I mean, is autistic. Yeah. Um, and so we said, like, if you need extra staff to help, you know, as a one-to-one, we are happy 
to fund this. We are happy to pay for an extra staff to uh, give a one-to-one uh, attention to our son while he is at the nursery. So they said they will consider it, and every sign was positive, you know, that they will do that. Um, they told us that after the break, after the Easter break, uh, that he should start. So 19 April, another bizarre you know, meeting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as bizarre as the 14th October meeting, <laughs> if I could say that. We arrived to the school with our son and, you know, we were told that there will be a meeting with um, a senior admin staff and a senior teaching staff who shall remain nameless for now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went into that meeting with them to, and for them to tell us that, sorry, we can't accept your son you know, in the nursery, you know, so we have to reject this uh, admission. And they said, you know, despite your generous offer of funding, you know, uh, uh, an extra member of staff, but we have a staffing policy of our own and we are not going to, you know, to go against it. And I I thought, okay, fine, what can we do? Like, you know, we have to do that. And then I remember uh, talking to them, I said, you know, one of the things that I find about, you know, um, institutions for autistics in Scotland is that they are lacking. Most of the good ones are south of the border. At that moment, that senior admin staff, and I mean senior really, hmm. she interrupted me and she said, can I offer you both? You know, she was talking to me and my wife. Can I offer you both a radical solution? I was thinking, yeah, I mean, of course you can, because I was thinking she's going to offer, you know, a nearby institution where I could take uh, my son to. So she said, what is holding you back here in Edinburgh? Why don't you consider leaving the country? The Middle East offer excellent facilities for uh, a child like yours. Someone is telling you, go to the Middle East. Why the Middle East? Like, I mean, just because we are from there. So what happened is, the other senior member of staff teaching, um, she looked at us also and she said, think about it for the well-being of both your children. So in other words, like, I mean, just go. Why don't you just go? Um, my wife started to have tears in her eyes because she understood the implications of the things that was said. And for me, I said, you know what, like, and I always have plans, plan A, plan B, plan C. This is how I always like and you know, lead my life. You know what, like, you know, let's go because I could hear my son, you know, uh, crying for me. Let's go. Mm. I wanted to go because I did not want my rage to surface. Mm-hmm. Seriously. You know, I just wanted to control my rage at that moment. And we went you know, to the car. We took our son and we were driving back home. On the way, my wife still in shock, still quiet, she turned to me and she asked a question which I never thought she would ever ask. She said, Eamon, do we belong here? So I said to her, not according to too many people recently. And three days later, she came to me. I remember in the kitchen, I was having a breakfast and she said to me, I think... It is time that we sell the house and we move out of the country because I can't take it anymore. That's just, I mean, I I think I I can only speak for myself, but I feel a lot of people would echo my thoughts that it's just sad that, you know, you you and your wife have felt that way. 
that she said, do we belong here? I would like to assert and say, yeah, you do, you do. Please stay, Thank like, you. hold <laughs> on to your leg. Please don't go. Um, but I can understand that, why you would feel that way. Well, I mean, after seven months of complying fully, you know, with the uh, school-imposed timings, and I will keep saying it and repeating it again, they imposed it on us through the means of trying to insinuate that if we don't do it, you know, they will ask us to withdraw our daughter. So what happened? And we were lying to other parents. You know, we were telling them, oh, you know, it's for work reasons. You know, that's why, like, I mean, the school was accommodating us and that's it. Like, you know, so even other parents can confirm that we kept it secret. We kept it quiet as the school asked us to do. But then when we decided to leave, that's it. Like, you know, we, our mind is set. I wrote an email uh, to the school on the 26th of uh, April informing them that I will be withdrawing our daughter uh, from the school on uh, 30th of June. This, so so it, will, it will be her last day in the school, which will be the last day of the school year. And that will be moving abroad, fulfilling the dark desires of certain people. And then I made my mind very clear to the school about everything that happened. I said, you imposed these times on us. And they had a significantly awful impact mm. on our daughter's well-being on our daughter's, you know, mental well-being. And you poisoned the atmosphere for us. During this whole time, we couldn't take to any birthday party with the exception of one because we knew that parent is so friendly, but the other parents, we didn't know anything because you told us two or three parents. And we noticed that it was really roughly for five parents who were hostile to us. And we don't know which parents to, you know, who made the complaint. And mm. so we have no idea which party to take her to and which party we don't take her to and as a result she wasn't attending any party we would make it you know usually the parties are on the weekend so what we will do is that every weekend there is a birthday party of one of her friends we distract her by taking her out of Edinburgh out of Scotland you know into another activity into Mm -hmm. a boat trip into uh, a hike in the mountains we do something to distract her and when it was her own birthday party which was uh, in late January uh, this year, um, we couldn't even take the chance of, you know, throwing a party for her. We bought yeah. gifts for all of her, uh, you know, colleagues in the class. We delivered it to the school. Um, but then we took her to Paris, uh, to mm. Disney uh, Paris, in order for her to be distracted and not to have, you know, to dwell about the idea that, oh, but I didn't have a proper birthday party because we didn't want to invite, uh, send general invite, and only seven, eight people, you know, show up. And that's it. Yeah, that's such a shame. Um I think we just have to kind of keep reaffirming that we're talking about, you know, a five-year-old, it's a baby, like that's that's your child, you're going to feel so protective. I don't want to sort of insensitively or painfully cement any anything you 100% have obviously already thought, but you can't get your first year at school back. You know, I remember my first year at school so clearly. I remember like the parties that I went to, I remember the party I had where... Um, we had a party in my aunt's house and I was raging because it was everyone was making too much noise <laughs> and I wanted it to be more um, calm. I don't know where that um, attitude went. But the, the point being that these things are so fundamental to a child's social development, cognitive development, and it's it's so completely unfair that the burden of someone else's issue was then placed on you and based on your account, not dealt with appropriately instead of, of saying, you know, we've... 
I, we can understand, okay, you may have some concerns. This would be my approach anyway to the parents. You have some concerns, fair enough. I think they may be born out of some naivety. We've taken all the proper procedures and we have full assurance that there are there are no issues. Um, did, did you have contact with the parents? You know, did you did you get an opportunity to say to them about what had happened that you decided to leave? How did that play out? Well, before I decided to do that, I thought first I need to give the school enough time in order for them to come back and to have a meeting with us. Just a meeting in order to, you know, rectify, you know, these things. So I contacted Mrs. Hems and I sent, you know, several detailed emails showing her our grievances, telling her like, you know, how I was treated and how our daughter was treated. I even compared, I said, you know, the children of terrorists, known convicted terrorists, they go to school normally. No one is saying that they shouldn't be there or they should be coming at different times and, you know, and all of that. I mean, and yet, you know, my children have to be treated differently. Why? Yeah. You know, that's not right in any way, shape or form. And so, and she kept trying to postpone, delay, postpone and delay. And every time I ask her for a meeting, you know, in order to discuss these things, you know, she keeps postponing, postponing, and the emails are there and all the evidence is there and you've seen it yourself. Yeah. Then in the end, when finally there was a meeting was supposed to take place, she decided that, you know what? No, I'm not going to meet you. I will just leave all of this to a mediation process. Mm -hmm. We will get a mediation process which could take 12 weeks and by that time we will be away out of the country. In other words, she just wanted the problem to go away. She wasn't willing to face it. And this is when I decided, you know what? Other parents should know about it now. Mm -hmm. I should have said at the time, you know, suggesting you go back to the Middle East, your kids have got British citizenship. You know, you've put your life on, on the line. Um, on multiple occasions you've affected your own long-term health and you've made enormous sacrifices why should you go anywhere you should you, sh- you shouldn't be I think is the answer is what I would say um, <laughs> thank you I, once again I, I will read out the statement we did contact uh, St George's in Edinburgh in the interest of transparency and balance uh, and they've given us the following statement While this matter is being examined by the Registrar for Independent Schools, it would be inappropriate for us to comment in any detail other than to say the school very strongly disputes the version of events and interpretation placed on them by Mr Dean. We are cooperating with the inquiry which is being held in response to a complaint from Mr Dean and have every confidence that once the Registrar has considered the matter, St George's will be found to have acted fully in accordance with all relevant safeguarding and regulatory procedures. So at this point, you, you decide, you know, the, the parents should know. Yeah. How did that go down? Well, we have a, a WhatsApp group created by parents for parents. Um, so it's supposed to be a safe space where, you know, we are talking about, you know, school issues and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, birthday parties and stuff like that. And so I wanted to alert the parents that our default position on birthday parties is that we do not attend. And the reason for that, and this is when I lost it completely as a parent, because by then, eight months of compliance, this is now 17 May, yeah. eight months of compliance got us nothing, got us com- in a complete, you know, um, let me put it this way. Like, you know, if the school was using any uh, inappropriate language with us, they will say piss off. <laughs> this is, this <laughs> yeah. is the la- This is, they were giving us the middle finger, you know, proverbially. Yeah. So, so I said to the uh, parents, I said, our default position on birthday parties, we do not attend. Why? Because, unfortunately, two members of this group tried to get our daughter 
expelled last October from the school because they did not feel comfortable, you know, with her being there. And this is when I said that we are leaving. And I said, like, you know, this is a blessing because I will not have to encounter these ugly racist faces. Hmm. That is what I said in that text message in the WhatsApp group. Why did I say that? Because when I come to the school in the morning, week after week after week after week, a month after month, and there is a woman standing there or two or three of them, and they are giving me and my five-year-old daughter ugly, dirty looks for no other reason except for who we are, then I have every right to say that they are ugly because you are making your face ugly at me. You are ugly, racist face. And so I said this on the group. I said, ugly racist faces. By the way, I have no idea who they are, so I didn't name anyone. Yeah. So ugly racist faces. Um, I said, however, do not... You know, yes, we are leaving the country, fulfilling the dark desires of some on this group. However, do not pop open yet those cheap bottles of Prosecco. You messed with the wrong person. Mm. So that statement then, and with another text after that saying, oh, and by the way, just to let you know, two members of the staff, two senior members of staff, and I named them there, Mm -hmm. you know, gave us the advice to go to the Middle East. You know, wonderful, because that's a standard advice, you know, that, you know, uh, you know, parents are getting these days. That's, we have a problem with you. Why don't you leave? Like, well, why is the burden being put on you? Exactly. So they took these text messages. They went to the head teacher and they told her, like, and we don't feel comfortable now, you know, uh, him coming to the school grounds. So, you know, because we are afraid now. He said, you messed with the wrong person. Well, to assume I'm violent is wrong because... First of all, you are profiling me. You are using my past, you know, against me. And my past is what? Being a spy and undercover, you know, against terrorists. So, you know, does that mean that if I was an undercover inside narcotics, you know, in the narcotics, like yeah. you know, inside, you know, uh, drug gangs, does it make me a drug dealer? Yeah. No, of course not. It doesn't. So we have a problem here, <laughs> which is these people profiling me. OK, you are allowed to profile me if I have a violent criminal record. The ironic thing, Sean, here is that 24 years living in this country, I did not see the inside of a police station, let alone the inside of a courtroom. Mm. I was never convicted or even arrested for any offense, violent or otherwise. Like, Mm. really, law-abiding citizen is an absolute good description here. Yeah. So... To assume that when I say that you mess with the wrong person, that I'm going to be violent is in itself profiling. Mm -hmm. It's illegal profiling. I said it not because I'm violent, but because I'm smart. And I think it's fair to say that you have some strong connections. I would imagine that was the the basis of the Exactly. That's exactly what I meant. But then they said, oh, you know, violence, we are afraid. Well, you are not afraid because why? They went to the... Uh, head teacher again she wrote me a letter official letter on a school uh, you know headed letter um, telling me three times throughout the letter to remain away from the school premises I'm banned so she sent me a barring letter barring me from the school premises because these parents feel uncomfortable with my presence and I thought it was pointless actually I was laughing and talking to my wife I was saying You know, I said to her, dear, isn't it pointless? Because I was already coming, 
you know, 25 minutes late every day <laughs> yeah. where they are not supposed to be there. Of course, they were there in order to smirk and at us and give us dirty looks at least, you know, twice a week. You know, they made it a religious, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, obligation on them. So, you know, why on earth, you know, uh, I have... Uh, you know, this letter barring me from the school. I'm already coming at different times. I'm not supposed to encounter them anyway. Mm. The ban that you were given from the school, was it um, was it with a, a, a sort of definitive period of time or was it indefinite? Indefinite. There right. was no time. You, were you given any transparency as to who made the the complaint because I'm just trying to figure out if there is a you know it's an even playing field you know if 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 your information or your private text message out with school grounds is being shared um, within the the sort of school dynamic should you not then have the, the air quotes here the privilege of the sort of same level of transparency well there should be because first of all these text messages you know. If they were threatening, the only authority that these parents, you know, should disclose these uh, text messages to will be the police, because it's only the police will be uh, entitled to look into it. And of course, they can't go to the police because there are no names there. Yeah. I didn't name anyone. I just said, like, you know, I mean, I don't know who they are to begin with. Um, and just described that there are two ugly racist faces. And I was thinking, I don't know who they are. Uh, so if they go to the police, the police will tell them, don't waste our time. There is no specific threat here to begin with. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it's not, you know, the, it will take a great deal of legal mental gymnastics to prove that this uh, WhatsApp group is part of the school premises. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the, whatever happened between parents, whether it is in a supermarket, car park or a trampoline party, if it is outside of school ground, it's nothing to do with the school. This is a police matter. So for Alex Hems to intervene in that was actually illegal. And to issue a barring letter on top of that was also more, uh, you know, uh, in cont contravening the um, regulations here. And not to mention that, wow, you acted within hours of their complaint. Yet I've been complaining to you and you have the emails, Sean, you've seen them. Yeah. You know, I've been complaining to you. You know, week after week after week, a month after month about the ugly looks we were getting from other parents. And all you are telling me in the emails, and we have the emails, you're telling me, oh, we can't control what other parents do, even if they are happening on school ground. Amen. Amazing. Come on, you know, <laughs> the, you don't have the luxury of the same the same uh, privilege that everyone else has. Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, I should know my place. Yeah. I'm a foreigner after all. So. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. On, <laughs> you know, on the, the 7th of June, when, when you had, I think, believe you're only face-to-face meeting um what i'll let you tell the story but how did how did that conversation I think it was go? Uh, 9th of june 9th of june sorry yeah sorry 9th of june yeah um you you had your first face-to-face -face meeting and there was there were a couple of things were said um what you know what was said within the the period of that meeting well that was uh incredible um we finally managed, you know, to uh, my wife and I get uh, Alex Hems to meet us because we've discovered how much data they are sharing with other parents about us without our knowledge. Parents who are hostile to us. Um, and, you know, we were angry and we said that these parents also are spreading malicious misinformation about us, you know, making it as if like, you know, a massacre is about to take take place on the ground of the school if we, you know, don't leave. So, you know, finally she agreed to meet us and that meet meeting was really tense. And it was the only face to face meeting that we had with her apart from the video call that we had with her uh, previous October. 
goodness, you know, in that meeting, I, you know, I sat down with her and my wife was there and we said the following. I said, look, you know, things really escalated to a level, you know, that I didn't anticipate. So, you know what, let us take a step backward and let me offer you something here. What we want is two things and two things only here. The first one is that for the school to write an email to the parents, just the primary one parents, the 17 parents, that's it, no, no one else, telling them that from the beginning there was no security threat based on the two assurances you know, by mm -hmm. the security services that there was no threat and that what happened was a giant misunderstanding between us and the school. And this is the first thing. We don't want apology. We don't want anything just to say that. And then the second thing is for our timings to be restored. Only three weeks left in the term. So, and we are leaving. Mm -hmm. So at least we are leaving with our heads held high, you know, not humiliated. We don't feel that, you know, we feel that there is a closure. So for our daughter, she feel that finally things went back to normal and that her memory of her school the last few weeks were good and that it was normal. It wasn't abnormal. And I said, and we will absolve the school of any responsibility after that. You know, sweet deal, sweet offer. Yeah. Guess what? She refused. And then she went on to say that it was all my fault. You know, because why? She said to me, to my face, you are Al-Qaeda. <laughs> Not you were. Remember, you know, look at like, I mean, her language. Yeah. She didn't say you were Al-Qaeda. She said you are Al-Qaeda. And this is scaring other parents. She said, I've researched, you know, uh, this subject myself. You know, Al-Qaeda is a scary subject all over the UK. And I was thinking, oh, my God, you already said I'm not welcome in Scotland. Now you have extended the entire welcome. And I remember, like, I mean, my wife was like, you know, getting surprised and surprised. And this time my wife got involved. Like, I mean, she was telling her you were sharing information with other parents, parents who were hostile to us. And she said, no, 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 no. I met those parents and they are wonderful parents. Oh, all right. Okay. To my wife, she said this. Yeah. Um, and what does that make you then? Um, <laughs> I... Well, I suppose number seven hundred example number seven hundred and fifty-five <laughs> of uh, Eamon's mind-bending contacts. But did you not speak to someone who's a very, very senior figure at Facebook? Indeed, yes. Meta, uh, the parent company of Facebook, Instagram, and uh, WhatsApp, said you know for any member of the group to take those messages and to go and share them with the school without your consent is in fact a violation of WhatsApp regulations uh, and Meta regulations, and mm. therefore they shouldn't have done that, and the school shouldn't have acted on that because apart from the fact it wasn't happening on school ground, so nothing to do with them, yeah. and it doesn't concern staff or uh, students, which means nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. Still, they were not supposed to see it. It's a privileged information and they were not supposed to have a look at it and then to act upon it. Why are you so determined to tell the story? First of all, today is me yeah. and my daughter. Tomorrow it will be the brave Afghan interpreters who worked so hardly and put themselves in danger for 16, 17 years working for the British army in Afghanistan, you know, putting their lives on the line, you know, to serve their country and to serve the UK armed forces. They will be next by, you have other parents saying, oh, we don't want their kids around because they, they could bring in the wrath of the Taliban on our school. Mm -hmm. If I don't stand up right now, tomorrow it will be someone else. Mm. Because, you know, if I don't put a stop to it today, 
It will be someone else tomorrow. Yes, we are leaving because my duty as a parent, my duty as a parent is to ensure that there should be, my daughter should not grow within a toxic environment. Mm -hmm. And the school, and I personally blame Alex Hems herself more than anyone else for having poisoned the atmosphere for our daughter in the school. To the point where even as a final act of vindictiveness by her school, when they were giving us her end of school report, because we told them we're leaving, so we need her end of school report, they gave us the report a month later than all the other students. I don't understand what is the logic behind it. And it was missing three uh, subjects. It was missing drama, music, and PE. And on top of that, it was a below average report. Hmm. In a painting our daughter as if like, you know, basically she is, you know, you know maybe number 10 out of 16 students. The, the school always will try to uh, say, oh, you know, uh, Mr. Dean and his controversial past or whatever. But, but in reality, you know, what did I do but doing the right thing, mm. the honorable thing? I'm putting my life on the line in the service of others to protect and to serve and to save lives. And for someone to think that this is something to be ashamed of and to even insinuate that my daughter should be ashamed of it is either ignorant or, I would say, downright xenophobic and racist. Mm. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not a convicted murderer, and yet the children of convicted murderers go to school normally. I'm not a convicted rapist, and the children of rapists are going to the schools normally. I'm not a convicted terrorist, and the children of convicted terrorists actually go to school, and no one can deny them the right of education. And for the school to think that they done us a favor you know, by admission, can you believe it? Even at the very end, in that meeting between me and my wife and Mrs. Hems on the 9th of June, she told us to our faces that she deeply regret now admitting our daughter to the school. Mm. It's the height of indecency. It's the absolute height of indecency, you know, and the lack of uh, tact and the lack of decorum. I mean, and to the point where I was thinking, you did us no favor. In fact, you know, it's not like St. George's School, you know, is oversubscribed and there are, you know, 10 years of waiting lists, you know, for people to get in. In fact, you know, my daughter's class, when they started the year, you know, they had 16 uh, students only. The class capacity is 22. And even by the end of the year, only 18 students were attending, which means there were, you know, in addition to my daughter, there were four other spaces available. So if I go to, the, to an airline and I ask to buy a ticket, mm -hmm. um, what's going to happen? If there is a space, they will sell me. If, they, if there isn't, they will not. So if there are 20 seats available and I buy one seat, the airline is not doing me a favor. It's a pure transaction. Transactional, yeah. Now we're at this point, you're, you're leaving. You're leaving the country, this country that you've, you've said is, is your spiritual home. I mean, now that we're kind of, I mean, the dust has not settled, but that part of that timeline is, has stopped. How, how do you feel? How do you and your family feel that, that you're leaving? Do you feel optimism? Do you feel regret? Like, what is your overriding emotion? There are several regrets I have, unfortunately. One of them is not sending my daughter to a state school. Mm. You know, it, because I used to read, because I wasn't a, you know, a parent of a school-age child before, and I used to read a lot, especially in a newspaper like The Guardian, for example, about 
the you know ill effects of private schools you know on society and how they you know create this elite you know mm. separate status you know and all of that and i remember you know thinking that oh this is just this is the guardian this is just a left wing agenda you know they are trying like you know, i mean to stick it up to the elite and all of that like you know private schools are good they are doing good thing and i didn't understand their antipathy towards private schools until i put my daughter in one my regret is not sending my daughter to a state school you know i you know i'm telling you like in the you know i'm now start to see why the guardian and other um you know journalists and other uh, mm-hmm. organizations are campaigning to take away the charitable status of these private schools because they are not acting as charitable as they should be no <laughs> you know, let's put it this way and yeah. i will campaign for St. George's School to lose their charitable status. They shouldn't hold it. Mm-hmm. Is there anything, two points. First one, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is relevant or that you would like to get across or have we have we managed to be expansive? I, th- I think, you know, we have covered everything. I just hope that no one should blame me for taking this decision to take my kids and go to Arabia. You know, when I called one of the senior generals, you know, of security there in Arabia and I told him what happened to us and He said something here. He said, I want you to get on the first airplane and come down here and live with us because we are your people. They never were your people. We are your people. And I was thinking, no, please don't say that because I never thought in my life that I will end up being a miniature example of my own podcast, Conflicted. I became so conflicted there. Yeah, it's like yeah. I fought for these people. And actually, I lost my original Arab nationality because, you know, when you spy for a country, you know, you belong to them. That's it. You know, you are part of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and my kids, myself even, and my kids, we only have one nationality, the UK nationality, the British nationality. And now I've been told, you know, by the senior Arab, you know, uh, official, come back. We are your people. Mm-hmm. You know, and it just it couldn't have come at the worst time, you know, in my life. And I was thinking, I have to do what is right for my kids. And I hope no listener will blame me for doing it. I am not turning my back on this country. I hope one day I will be able to come back. But, you know, for now, I need to provide what is good for my kids. I think I think anybody listening um, wouldn't um, wouldn't reel against that. I wouldn't disagree with you. Um, I personally, I'm sad that you'll be gone. I think Scotland will be and the UK will be worse off. Uh, without having you for everything that you've contributed very kind of you everything you you continue to do Um, once more uh, in the interest of balance I'll I'll read out the statement that the big light received from St George's in Edinburgh which reads as follows while this matter is being examined by the registrar for independent schools it would be inappropriate for us to comment in any detail other than to say the school very strongly disputes the version of events and interpretation placed on them by Mr Dean we are cooperating with the inquiry which is being held in response to a complaint from Mr Dean and have every confidence that once the registrar has considered the matter St George's will be found to have acted fully in accordance with all relevant safeguarding and regulatory procedures. Eamon, uh, thank you very much for, for coming in and, and for sharing this. It's a painful experience to live, uh, to relive and to, to live in the midst of. I hope that you, you do get the closure uh, that you're seeking. And yeah, and I just think we'd like to wish you and your lovely family all the very, very best for, for the future. And I hope that one day we'll see you back here again. Maybe Glasgow next time. I uh, hope so. It should. <laughs> I, I wish it was Glasgow. <laughs> yeah. 
yes, I'm wishing you all the very best. Thank and you. to you listening, thank you for listening. And we will be back with another episode of Blethered soon. Eamon will be joining me live on stage at SWG3 in Glasgow on Tuesday the 30th of August to talk about his remarkable life and career as a spy for MI6+, plus the most recent events that have led to him leaving Scotland. There are only a few tickets available. You'll find the link in the episode notes. So get yours before it's too late, as this will be your only chance to hear what else Eamon has to say. Leathered was written and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series, including Talk Media, Natural Wonders, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug, and Old School. All on the big light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.